Hi, this is Glenn Lowry. At the Glenn Show, originally of bloggingheads.tv, uh, now uh, available at my YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Glenn Lowry Show, and at my Substack account, glennlowry.substack.com. So, happy Christmas, Merry Hanukkah, best wishes of the season to all who might be tuning in. Thank you for tuning in to The Glenn Show. Uh, we are at the end of the year 2021. You have probably expected to see John McWhorter and I talk about the stuff we talk about, and you will, in fact, see us do that. Though we are taking a week off, John and I talk twice a month here at The Glenn Show. John McWhorter, Columbia University, distinguished linguist, linguist and author, my conversation partner here of many years at The Glenn Show. We talk every other week, but we're taking a week off and uh, we're going to offer you a montage of outtakes from some of the most interesting conversations over the course of last year that John and I have enjoyed together. You expected to see us talk live, but we are going to offer you a, a, a rerun of some of our uh, highlights. Uh, but it is the year 2021. It is coming to the end. Uh, it's been a momentous year for The Glenn Show, and I wanted to take this opportunity to thank all of those who have uh, supported us over the course of the last year. Uh, your letters that come into my email inbox, your comments that are posted uh, at the newsletter and at the Blogging Head site uh, and at YouTube. Um, have been very gratifying. It's been very gratifying to see the way in which the show has been received, the conversation that John and I have in an ongoing way, and my other guests. So thank you. It's been an interesting 14 going on 15 years of my association with bloggingheads.tv. Thanks very much to Robert Wright, the proprietor there, for really proposing the idea that I do a regular um, internet uh, conversation platform uh, and for showing me the way. There would be no Glenn Show but for Robert Wright, and I'm grateful to him or for that. For most of that period, until just a year or so ago, um, we were offering um, our content without asking anything from the audience. And, uh, John and I have uh, developed our uh, rapport together and have laid down a body of argument and uh, analysis of race and American society uh, over the course of that period. But, oh, about a year and a half ago, we decided that we were going to allow for financial support for the show, and we're grateful to the outpouring, first at Patreon and uh, now at a substack that our uh, audience has afforded us. Um, it's allowed me to uh, substantially improve the quality of the audio and video um, for uh, the show, uh, and it has allowed uh, us to support the staff uh, who work behind the scenes to make The Glenn Show possible. I'm speaking in particular about our creative director, Nikita Petrov, an extraordinarily talented young man who has been a mastermind behind the transition of The Glenn Show from a sleepy 
a little sideshow at uh, bloggingheads.tv to the uh, to the growing uh, behemoth that it is becoming, I say with modesty. But Nikita is a very important player in that. Uh, I look forward to working with him for a long time to come. And also Mark Sussman, uh, the editor of the newsletter at Substack, who writes the intro uh, framing pieces for the postings of the podcast and who manages the flow of content at the newsletter. Uh, Mark's a terrifically talented uh, writer and editor, and I'm grateful uh, for his support. And neither of these guys would be uh, able to help here at the Glenn Show, but for the generosity of those of you who are uh, contributing to the support of the show, I, I very much appreciate that. You know, I have to uh, think of uh, Josh Cohen, the philosopher, uh, who uh, was the person who first invited me to do a blogging heads conversation. He and I talked about race, incarceration, and American values, some lectures I gave at Stanford in 2007. And it was shortly after that that Bob Wright invited me to come on to the platform on a regular basis. So um, shout out to shout out to Josh Cohen. So I think that's it by way of introduction, by way of uh, expression of appreciation for you guys supporting what we're doing here, uh, by way of acknowledging the transformation in the in the uh, show that has uh, taken place over the last eighteen months. And by way of expressing my confidence that we have uh, many years to come of uh, enjoying a relationship uh, with those of you who follow the show and myself and John, uh, because we don't think the issues, the ones that we talk about, the ones that we care passionately about, are likely to go away anytime soon. Um, and this voice, uh, the one that you've come to know and love here at The Glenn Show, uh, has uh, no intention of shutting up. Thank you. You don't want the standards lowered in order to accommodate For diversity. Yeah. You, you think that the lowering of the standards is an implicit statement of a lack of confidence in our capacity to do what others have done. It is. Uh, you think this is a smokescreen. It's a cover story. The story that I just gave about how we're in the 21st century and there's no, we got very good translations and, uh, it, you know, we're, we're modernizing it for everybody, not just for our minority students. They're just uh, doing it for us. <laughs> you, you, you think that they look at the black students and they are fear that if they were to hold up a common standard and they say, you know, learn Latin and Greek. That's what we do. We call it the classics. It's been like that for 500 years. Learn Latin and Greek. You want to play? Learn Latin and Greek. That they think we'd fall, fall flat on our faces. It's a, it's a kind of bigotry of low expectations about black people, you think tacitly they agree with Charles Murray, your version of Charles Murray. I don't think you would be quite fair to Charles Murray, but we can go into that. But uh, since I'm going to be talking with Charles Murray here at the Glenn Show in a week, uh, we may want to go into it. But in any case, you're thinking that tacitly these uh, friends of blacks are quote unquote friends are, are really closet racists who think that black people are intrinsically not up to the task that others have shown themselves to be up to. I'm not going to call them racist for that, but I think a lot of them are afraid of that. Or some of them, it might be something even more benign. They just think that it's inauthentic to expect a black kid to learn Latin or Greek. A lot of them are probably really into the black thing. A lot of them probably think black people are really cool. And they're thinking about Afropunk and Spike Lee's latest movie, and they like their hip hop, and they think all this 
this is just great. And they're thinking, why should any black kid have to deal with Amo, Amas, Ama? That kid should be over on the other side of campus learning Swahili. And if he's going to do classics, then he's going to come in and he's going to tell us about how our discipline is white supremacist. That's that black person's job. And that person feels that as the most advanced kind of thought. I, I get it. They think of themselves as on black people's side. The problem is that what they think isn't true. That's not on black people's side. That's infantilization. And I don't know whether they really know it deep down, but it, it won't do. And I think black people need to stand up against this sort of thing when they're in a position. Well, to I'm wondering that. why we don't. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm imagining, I don't know, 100 years ago, um, immigrants from Eastern Europe or Southern Europe, Italian, Jewish, wanting to break through into the American establishment, uh, seeing this implacable wasp power structure that looked down on them because their food was too garlicky or they were speaking mm -hmm. Yiddish or whatever it might be. And my understanding was that uh, these uh, outsiders sought to get in. Their noses were pressed against the candy store window. They saw the goodies on the inside and they wanted to prove themselves worthy. And, and, and they embraced the challenge of, as it were, learning Latin and Greek or, as it were, learning higher mathematics so as to be good economists. They embraced that challenge. I think of Paul Samuelson, the founding father in some sense of mathem mathematical study and economics coming out of the 1930s, a Jewish kid from Gary, Indiana, who got to Harvard and blew everybody away with his brilliance, but was still a Jewish kid from Gary, Indiana, and he wasn't invited into the inner sanctum and proved his bona fides by out mathematic, out mathematicizing the mathematicizers, as it were. Um, so there's another way to go for us. I'm wondering why we don't take it, which is rather than challenging the standards of performance, to embrace the standards of performance and to demonstrate our bona fides by excelling at the standard. Don't take away the markers that I was going to use to illustrate to you that not only am I as good as you are, actually I can beat you at your own game. So is it not only the Dons at Princeton who lack confidence in their BIPOC population's capacity to master Greek and Latin? Is it perhaps also we, the sons and daughters of the Black American middle class, the most privileged and richest and powerful group of African descended people ever to have lived? You know, I, I'm talking about the sons and daughters of the Black American middle class. Is it we who lack uh, confidence in our capacity? Maybe we believe your version of Charles Murray, that we're just not up to it. Don't test us. We can't get it done. I am inclined to think that what we are to think is just that the way white people do things is distasteful, that it's inauthentic, that it's not us. It just doesn't smell good. But the problem is, this is a question that I don't think is being answered amidst our current assumptions. And that is... Suppose the new thing is that, no, that Jewish immigrant isn't going to learn Latin or formal English or how to do math, that that was unreasonable, that was barbaric, that this imposition of certain, you know, anti-Macassar white standards, that was something from the old days. And now we're going to get on to something different. There's a blackness, for example, that we want to work with. And so no standardized tests, no math with the economics, you know, do, do the kind that doesn't require math. But you notice that all those things that we're not supposed to do are always hard. 
you know, Latin and Greek from English are, are hard. No Latin or Greek too hard. I mean, frankly, Swahili is easier than those languages. And folks, remember, on this one little narrow thing, if we're going to talk about Blackness, I do have expertise, and Swahili is much easier than Latin or Greek, period. That's true. So not Latin or Greek, not something hard like that, but, you know, something that happens to be easier. And the problem is, if you're not going to do this white stuff, because it's inauthentic and it's, it's white supremacist, what is it that we're supposed to do? What is what is the black thing? And I swear to God that I get the feeling that the idea is that we're just supposed to sit around being intuitive. I almost want to say, what are, are these people thinking blackness is if it isn't precision and challenge? Is it dancing and sports? Literally. Is it that black people are good entertainers and that black people are good at, at, at basketball? Because I can't think of what else it would be. And if that's what it is, if the idea is that we're supposed to use our bodies and that we're supposed to sit around having casual conversations and exhibit community, you know, this idea that Africans are unique and, you know, focusing on community as if there are any people in the world who don't focus on community. Are we supposed to be a community? What's the community going to accomplish? I'm not sure people have an answer to that. So intuitive economics, intuitive physics, what? And so I just worry that, People are so caught up in this idea of rejecting the boring whiteness, the imposition, the hegemony, that they're not thinking, well, what else are you going to do? What would you invent? How would you make the world better? And beyond singing and playing basketball and looking good, I'm not sure what it's supposed to be. Do you know what it's supposed to be? Like, for example, if we dumb down all the disciplines and get rid of the hard stuff, what's the black version? You know, music theory that isn't about music theory. So there's black music theory. What is it? Beating drums? I yeah, just... you're, you're asking the wrong guy. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking two things. I'm thinking, first of all, the inhabitants of antiquity of the of the ancient world of uh, Greece and Rome were not white. <laughs> they, they, they weren't white. They were they were Greco-Roman. They were, they were brown, Mediterranean, but brownish. they weren't white. That It makes no sense. That's an anachronism. That's projecting something backward millennia and imposing it on a structure where it made no sense. Uh, the other thing I'm thinking is that we descendants of Africans who now live in the modern West are not Africans. We're Westerners. Our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, et cetera, et cetera. English is my mother tongue. It was my mother's mother tongue. It was her mother's mother tongue, et cetera. I'm as close to I don't know, Tolstoy, Shakespeare, Cicero, uh, as I am to anybody who ever wrote, if they wrote, Swahili or spoke in the oral tradition of Swahili. This is my world. The West is my world. So there's something very artificial about the identitarian move that's being made here, where we take the corpus of human culture, which we inherit in the 21st century, and we parse it and chop it up and, and hand it out to uh, our contemporaries uh, based upon categories of racial identity, which made no sense in the times in which they uh, uh, these texts that we have inherited from the ancients uh, were, were actually written. Uh, so I, you know, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm not into it. They say, is there a black economics? I mean, you know, how could there be a, a black economic? There are a set of questions that may be of more interest to certain people 
in virtue of their identity, you can pursue those questions, but the methods by which you assess the evidence that bears on those questions by which you construct conceptual frameworks to articulate and interrogate those questions, uh, those methods are, are universal. They're, they're not, uh, they, they don't adhere to a particular culture or a particular way of seeing the world. Um, and I think, here's the other thing that's going on. We are in the 21st century after all, and guess what forces are dominating the large global dynamic of the 21st century? They're coming out of East Asia. Those people are not Europeans. Last time I checked, the Chinese were not Europeans. They, they usually they, are. Last time <laughs> I checked, they had their own history going back, of co culture going back thousands of years. Uh, and the last time I checked, they were all over Caltech. They, they were all over MIT. And if they're doing the classics, I'm sure they're reading Latin and Greek. Okay. Mm -hmm. in, in other words, they didn't stop being Chinese by understanding that the modern world is the modern world. They rather made it their business to master the modern world. We're always going to be subordinate. We're always going to have our hand out. We're always going to be like a bunch of kids in the corner throwing a tantrum, threatening to pull the house down if we don't get our way. Unless we man up and woman up to the challenges of the modern world. I think learning Greek and Latin when you're studying the classics is one of those challenges. I think the STEM disciplines is the uh, arena in which a lot of those challenges are being confronted by modern people who want to grow up and be effective in the world in which we live in. So if we don't surrender the shtick, my great, 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 we're, we're enslaved going back 400 years. White supremacy has done me wrong. I'm entitled to reparations. What, you know, I, you know uh, if we don't surrender it and man up and woman up to the challenges of the modern world, we're going to be dependent on the largesse and the beneficence uh, and the generosity and the sympathy and the pity of white people for another 400 years. Cole Astaire asking, perhaps you could make a few comments on how you and your spouses, as directed to both of us, John, keep politics from affecting your romantic lives. I don't know much about John's family, but I know that Glenn's wife seems to disagree with him. How do you make that work? Well, Cole Astaire, you perceive correctly that my wife and I don't agree about a lot of stuff. My lovely wife, Lawan, who has made cameo appearances here at the Glenn Show and with whom John had, uh, has enjoyed uh, pleasurable company. Many times, yeah. Uh, is a, a Bernie Sanders Democrat. And worse than that, she's a news junkie, Bernie Sanders Democrat, who stays on top of all the podcasts and all of the critical articles, com articles coming out about this, that, or the other and is constantly challenging me on stuff that I say on The Glenn Show. And actually, I don't know how many of these uh, episodes between me and John that she's actually watched uh, from, from front to back. I think she probably gets halfway through and it turns her stomach so much mm -hmm. that she can't, can't bear to hear it out. How do we manage? With great difficulty, Cole is there, with great difficulty. Um, I, I, I actually haven't thought systematically about what the the guidebook is uh, for negotiating uh, this, uh, these uh, treacherous waters. Uh, I'll, but I'll say a few things. One is we never go to bed mad at each other. Th that's, that's 
that's a rule. We don't, we don't, you know, we have the snit. Sometimes we have the snit. I can't believe you said that. Haven't you read this? And then the feedback is, oh, you don't respect me. You think I'm not reading. You think I'm not informed. You think you're the only person who knows something because you're a professor, blah, blah, blah. He's a jackass. This is a politician that I like that she's referring to as a jackass. Okay, not Donald Trump, not Donald Trump. Anyway, or you're always talking about cancel culture. Why don't you talk about the minimum wage? I don't hear you talking about the minimum wage, bread and butter issues. These are fish in a barrel that you're shooting, all the stupid stuff that these kids are doing on the college campuses, blah, 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 blah. Or, or, or I'll say something like, you know, Cardi B with that WAP stuff. I, I get it. I, I get why you can't take your eyeball off of the rotating buttocks. But really, it's not art and it's not good for our kids. And it wants to be somehow criticized, even as we accept the fact that there's a First Amendment and blah, 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 blah. And she will say, what decade were you born in again? <laughs> Stuff like that. We try not to hold a grudge. That's one thing. We try not to bite our tongues, however. I, I think that's very bad. I think developing the habit of simply suppressing the disagreement because you anticipate that it's going to be unpleasant and you nod and go along, and then you hold a resentment within yourself, feeling bullied by the fact that you can't express your opinion without getting an earful, uh, is unhealthy. There's a kind of passive aggressive negativity that's embedded within that because you're now a victim of the fact that you can't speak your mind freely without anticipating that it's going to elicit some kind of negative response. Another thing that I'll say, the question is, uh, how do you manage with the disagreement not to ruin your romantic uh, lives. Another thing I'll say is we listen, or at least I try to be very careful about this, not shutting myself down in the middle of the second sentence of the argument that she's making, because I know where it's going and I know that I disagree with it, but try to listen, try to be generous. Where I can agree, I agree. Man, believe me, I agree, I agree. I send, sit over to you, see, I saw this, this is exactly the argument you were making the other day, and I think this person is right. I send that kind of note uh, weekly uh, on where I can find agreement, where I can find affirmation, agree. But of course, we have to have something other than politics to talk about. I mean, it can't just be argument. And so there is a wide sphere of uh, areas of mutual interest that uh, we can somehow repair to. But I, I will, I'll confess, uh, it is, it is uh, troubling sometimes uh, the tensions that bu bubble up to the surface uh, between us. And we have to be careful. We have to be mindful. Gratuitous offense, gratuitous affront, uh, sarcasm, uh, uh, passive aggressive uh, self-pity. Uh, these are things one can become more aware of in oneself and one can try to work to stifle them down. Sometimes saying nothing at all is the best uh, reaction, especially if you can feel yourself uh, going into one of those uh, darker places of, uh, of uh, you know, anger, self-pity uh, and, and, and so on. Uh, so, and you know, there have been times when we have agreed to disagree. I have gone to another room 
And uh, we check back again in 90 minutes or a couple of hours after I finished that chapter in the book and she finishes, uh, you know, doing whatever she's doing over on the other side of the house. Help, having a big house helps. It helps a lot. I can go to the lower level. <laughs> mm-hmm. I got a pool table down there, you know, got a little TV and a little futon, put my feet up, watch a basketball game, let it, let it chill, let it cool out, uh, and then hook back up for dinner that night. It's not perfect. And, I, you know, we've only been married three plus years. So, you know, your prayers are welcome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> John, you got anything to say to Cole on this question? Um, not as not as much as you. Um, I guess this is the first time I've said on our show that um, two falls ago, my ex-wife and I split, actually. And so I've been a single dad since then. This was about six months before the lockdown happened. And I would say on that subject that um, she is very intelligent, very educated, and a great person, but she's further to the left than I am. And she, I don't think she would have any argument with my saying that she is is woker than I am. And I don't mean excessively woke, but she is woker than I am. And I think she would have much less of a problem with the development since last summer than I do. And later in our marriage, I was beginning to notice a certain divergence between us in terms of my feelings about, you know, various things that, you know, going on in the media, various ideological currents and hers. And it was beginning to even affect what kind of company we, 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 we preferred to keep. And this was not officially why our marriage ended. However, I would say that I am glad that if it had to end, it was over by what happened last summer and what's happened since, because I can imagine conversations would have gotten a little awkward, kind of like what you're describing. And, you know, my living space is fairly big, but we have two small kids and it would have been harder to stay away from each other. And um, yeah, I would say that, um, She's a great person. There were great things about our marriage, but I find it hard in myself now moving on with someone who wasn't in basic agreement with my skepticism of a lot of these modern developments. And I guess it's partly just that you continue changing and developing as you go through life. And I'm at a point here in my you know middle, middle age where I am quite I have quite a strong sense of myself with a capital S as being someone who has certain commitments. And those commitments include pushing back against the excesses of what is now being called wokeness. You know, some people think we're against woke. I think of myself as thoroughly woke. My issue is wokeness that's mean. And to the idea that all of these things going on are somehow permissible, that it's inevitable excess that we should just look upon and click our tongues. Not that my ex ever said anything like this, but a hypothetical person who would, that wouldn't work for me. I need to come talk about, you know, making dinner and watching the basketball game. Although in my case, it would be an old movie or something like that. I would need to do those things with somebody who was not put off by my not feeling the way the New York Times op-ed page felt about something. At this point, I would not want to have to build bridges about things like that. So yeah, that's an that's an interesting thing. When I've started thinking about, okay, I'm gonna I'm out there. 
who's it going to be? I thought, well, it's limited partly because I've got to be with somebody who gets why I would write a book like The Elect. So that is my answer to that question too. Mr. Cole Astaire, talk about an old movie. That's a <laughs> that's a great name. Sounds like a character. That I old see. Movie. So, yeah. Yeah, Cole Porter and Fred Astaire is what you're thinking about. Yeah, we got to get Ginger Rogers in there somewhere. (laughs) And, you know, just another word on this, because I I hear what you're saying. I relate to what you're saying uh, at a deep level. I mean, uh, I feel like I'm on a mission and I want my soulmate to be on the same mission with me. You know what I mean? I want to know that she's got my back, that she's rooting for me, that she's following my play and that she's cheering me on. And I don't always feel that and I miss it. Uh, you know, I, I do. The other ha- side of that though, is there's a built in uh, kind of uh, critic that has got me always questioning myself. And maybe a cheerleader would be bad for a guy like me. Maybe that would uh, not, I I'd lose my governing mechanism and I tend to go a little bit overboard because, because I get reinforcements to my worst tendencies of ranting, you know, wild eyed uh, rage, you know, at uh, the machine of uh, uh, third wave anti-racism as you put it in your book of wokeness. And, and I, I lose touch. I mean, for example, let me give you just one example. I know this is your question, but Oh, no, it was my question. (laughs) Okay, so I can do this. Um, uh, Which was that, uh, you know, I think the universities are going to hell in a handbasket under the management of the anti-racist brigades uh, of the diversity and inclusion uh, structures of the students who are demanding social justice be demonstrated and uh, moral righteousness be signaled with with every action in the university. The people who are uh, raging against the colonial imposition of the Western canon uh, in the curriculum, uh, et cetera. Uh, Here at Brown, there's now a petition circulating among students to reinstate a required course. Brown is famous for having an open curriculum where there are no requirements. And that's a matter of principle of a kind of pedagogic, ideological stand. There are no requirements. Students make up their own program here at Brown with the guidance and input of the professors, but there are no requirements. Different departments may have requirements for meeting their concentration standards, but there are no university requirements. They've talked about imposing the requirement of people taking an anti-racism course universally uh, of people who matriculate here at Brown. And, uh, you know, I'm against it. I'm strenuously against it. I, and, you know, I'm a prominent person in the, uh, in the political life of the community. And, you know, I'm thinking about writing a piece. And my wife is counseling me against it. Don't stick your neck out like that. Don't, don't stand in opposition to the students and whatnot. And I'm saying, you know, these kids, uh, they, they don't know what the hell they're doing. And they're, you know, and the, there's no uh, parental supervision because, you know, my colleagues won't stand up for any principal and whatnot. And she says, I had told her about a letter that I received from Alden Morris. Alden Morris is a very distinguished sociologist at Northwestern University, an African-American who's written a book about the origins of the civil rights movement that was published, I think, in the 1980s. And anyway, it's a classic. It's a classic study of the civil rights movement, Alden Morris. And he and I attended the same community college in 1969, John, when Mm -hmm. you were four years old, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> we attended the same community college as, as you know, black kids kind of intellectual coming up on the South side, you know, uh, not quite doing as well as we might've been doing and we needed some place to go and, you know, take some classes. He and I attended the same. He's now a tenured professor, very distinguished. I'm sure he has a chair at Northwestern, Northwestern in sociology, still lives in Chicago. I am who I am. And uh, Alden wrote me a letter during the height of the post-Ferguson turmoil, when I was also on a tear about the students being off base, about Black Lives Matter being not what you want to say. And he counseled me to remember my roots. And I had told my wife, Lawan about this letter uh, when we were dating years ago. And she reminded me of it. And she made me go and get it out. And she made me read it. Read what Alden Morris wrote to you. He reminded you of your roots. He reminded you that you were once one of these kids running around on the college campus with your head full of all ideas and whatnot. He told you that as a senior member of the community, they looked to you for leadership, that you had to have patience, that you needed to help them, not just scold them. Keep that in mind, says Lawan, reminding me of what my uh, colleague uh, in black academia and my fellow Chicagoan from the same post Second World War baby boom generation had to say to me, keep your feet on the ground, Glenn. Don't forget where you came from, Glenn. Don't forget your uncle Alfred saying to you, was this is Luan saying to you once, we could only send one to Harvard and MIT and all of that. We sent you and we don't see us in anything you do. This is what my uncle said to me on one occasion. Luan knows about this because I've shared it with her. She's kind of my conscience in a way. You're still a black man from the south side of Chicago. Don't you ever forget that. That's not nothing. It's not an answer to the question of what to do about affirmative action and what to say about George Floyd riots, but it's not nothing. Mm-mm. It isn't. And, um, you know, it's interesting. Um, I don't know if I should go here. My ex was white. And um, I think to myself, it'd be interesting because I, I don't want to cheer. You know, I don't want somebody who doesn't get me, but I would want somebody who was also a constructive critic too. And it's occurred to me that if that were a black woman, she would do it particularly well. There are all sorts of nuances that she would get. There are all sorts of resonances and you know historical aspects of it. She would be the best person for that. But unfortunately, and this, I shouldn't say this publicly, but you know what? Life is short. Unfortunately, so many educated black women find views like yours and mine repulsive that the pool is narrowed. It's not impossible. There are educated women who could deal with deal with this, so to speak. I hope I'm married to one of them. Yeah. But for a great many, it would, you know, somebody like me would seem just, you know, deracialized, you know, doesn't like his own people. I mean, it's in many fields, it's the heart of education to be taught this particular kind of hyper-woke ideology. And so it's hard for me to say where that's going to go. And I want to reiterate, I'm not saying that there are no Black women who understand the way somebody like me thinks there are plenty. That's why I say these things in the public. Nevertheless, in the circles that you know you and me travel in, it can be hard to find that woman. So it's interesting. I wouldn't mind having that counselor because most white women, through no fault of their own, probably couldn't do it as well as Luan. Nevertheless, life is complicated. So, yeah. Okay. Well, let's move on. 
I think your inbox is going to be full of uh, invitations to a virtual meeting place by suitors. It's going to be full of various people very angry at what I just said. <laughs> that <laughs> but, too, but you're now declared a very eligible bachelor, John. Today's show sponsor is The Spectator magazine. Having been founded in 1828, it's the longest running magazine in the world. The mission statement they sent me says they believe that journalism must be witty and insightful and that ideas should be discussed without the constant threat of cancellation. They're neither right or left wing and consider their mission to convey intelligence, not ideology. They believe that life is bigger than politics, which is why the magazine covers arts, culture, food, wine, travel, and life all around. The slogan they use to convey this is, the spectator is more cocktail party, less political party. So sign up today and you'll receive three free months of both the print and digital magazine, plus a free spectator hat. Just use offer code GLENN, G-L-E-N-N, at checkout to redeem the special offer just for listeners of this podcast. Go to spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer and use offer code Glenn. I've been aware of the spectator for many years and feel comfortable saying that even if you disagree with its politics, you are guaranteed to be entertained. Their contributors include many prominent and sometimes controversial authors from Christopher Buckley to PJ O'Rourke to Douglas Murray to Slavoj Žižek, from the Biden administration to book reviews, from cancel culture to cultural cuisine, the spectator will entertain you from cover to cover. So sign up today to get three months of the spectator for free, plus a free spectator hat when you subscribe at spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer. Use offer code Glenn at checkout to redeem your offer. That's spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer and offer code Glenn. It's this redneck Tom Sowell point that I tend to avoid because I don't know what to do with it, which is in the black community, there is a value placed on being a badass motherfucker. Some of this is that a critical mass of people salute these men for the resistance. The idea being that that's the black thing. You don't put up with any shit. I don't know what to do with that. Um, does it come from hillbilly culture? Probably. Do Are there cultural differences among people? Yes. And that clearly is an element in the water in black culture. Crazy motherfucker. Okay. You know, Richard Pryor in the benign sense. But then it comes out with this business of resisting arrest and people saluting it as an, an indication of your masculinity, that you're you're kind of saluting black oppression in the past. Are we supposed to say that black men need to get over that? And then the question is, would there be a point? It's kind of like saying that people need to stop using the N word as a term of affection. You know, you can have a, you can have a nice panel about it, but it's not. One I was talking to a black audience in DC and I was suggesting that, you know, this business of going to pieces every time somebody uses the N word, one way that we might, get past that is to just stop going to pieces and have the pride to understand that some word cannot make us cry. And it wasn't a tough session, but 
one black guy said, well, I hear what you're saying, brother, but, you know, I'm a tough motherfucker. I like to get up and get angry. And he stood up and the whole room starts clapping, especially the women. And I get it. I like I, I understand the humor. I understand the cultural strain. You know, I'm not that deracialized. But the other side of that is something like Ahmaud Arbery trying to take the gun or I I won't I, I've already said it. Dante Wright trying to jump into the car instead of just standing there and taking what he was about to be given. I, I he shouldn't have been killed, but still. And if we're just if we're if the idea is going to be it's the proper black thing to resist, and how dare you kill somebody when they do it? There's just nowhere to go from there. And yet I can tell part of it is the idea that to be a soul to be to resist arrest is to be a soldier. That that's what somebody with balls does. That's the black thing to do. He's not some namby-pamby white guy who just says, yes, officer. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know whether there's any point in saying that something should change. I'm not a badass motherfucker, clearly. And so I'm certainly not the one who's going to say, stop acting like one. I don't know what to do with it, but clearly it's part of it. It's the black guy's thing to resist. Well, John- I don't know. Uh, I'll tell you, I'm working on the memoir. I really am, John. I'm trying to catch up with you. Maybe if my book sells more than the sum of your books have sold, I will feel like I have pulled even with you. I'm praying. I'm praying. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But I am in the grips of writing the the memoir. So here's one thing that I've discovered about myself. And this is by way of uh, supporting what you just said about badass motherfuckers. So in the 1980s, I got into trouble with cocaine I got into trouble with an extramarital affair. I was in the habits of roaming the streets of inner city Boston, Roxbury, Dorchester, Mattapan, buying drugs, hooking up, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. The most benign of it was playing chess until three o'clock in the morning on a street corner with a guy called Eddie, uh, who uh, used to make his living by selling little trinkets off of a tabletop in front of a Korean greasy spoon me and Eddie were buddies and he loved to play chess. He loved to play five minute chess and we'd get out there and we'd play. But that was the most benign of it. I was hanging in the hood with my peeps. I'm a professor at Harvard, hanging in the, you know, 35 years old, hanging in the hood with my peeps, 37 years old, 40 years old, hanging in the hood with my peeps because I was a badass motherfucker because I could negotiate a seminar room over in Cambridge at the Kennedy School of Government on by day in a housing project where just about anything you wanted could be purchased for a price by night. And no one was the wiser. I was a badass motherfucker. I was like Superman. I would go into that telephone booth and I put on my uniform, <laughs> cock my hat to the side, pull my collar up, get my walk together, get my slang, my cold switching thing. You know how it is. And I could hang. I could hang. I was authentically black. John, you wrote a book with that title. I was authentically black because I could hang in the hood. Now, how fucked up was that? Okay, that's, that's why y'all need to buy the memoir. W.W. Norton and Company, spring of 2022. How messed up was that? So I am familiar with the syndrome, all right? I, I know what you're talking about. It's a disaster is what I have to report from my own experience. It is an absolute, suppose I had been gunned down. I was robbed several times at gunpoint in these years over there on the streets of Boston. 
Suppose I had lost my life to some trigger-happy, coked-up idiot trying to get the $20 out of my pocket. It could have easily happened. What a tragedy that would have been. What a waste that would have been. Right. So important to me was my sense of continuity with my life from Chicago in the 1950s and the 1960s. That once I had become a tenured professor at Harvard, indeed the first African-American to hold the position of tenured professor of economics in that university's history, I was willing to throw it all away just to have the internal sense of authenticity that came from being a badass motherfucker. Now, here's what I'm I'm here to tell you. It is a deep and profound problem in our culture. I'm talking about African-Americans, this tendency. It should be opposed. It should be renounced. It should be denounced. It should be called out for what it is. There's no glory in it. Now, you think this is politics? You think you're representing the angst of your enslaved ancestors? This is idiocy. It's infantile. It's a mistake. And yet, see, this stuff is so hard. You know, Orlando Patterson talks about this as the cool My good friend, and he's he's right. And I have seen, you know, self-appointed, you know, guardians of the race saying that he's just making all that up. You know, the, the strategy is that, well, it's more complicated than that. But of course, nobody ever explains the nature of the complexity. But obviously, there's that's there. And it's not as if black men in the United States started in the century are the only people who became dominated by that idea. You can see that in the history of many people, including the Irish, including Italians. You can see it in people other than black people today. Good point. But it is a problem. And I find it highly likely that an awful lot of black people deep down like it. it. They think of it as swagger. They think of it as our way of dealing with a bad hand. And unfortunately, that thing gets a lot of people killed. And that kind of person hears me say that and they jump and say, the person didn't deserve to die. We agree, folks. I thought, you know, I'm, I'm human. I know the person shouldn't have died. But the point is, if only he hadn't resisted, he would still be alive. But there's no room for that point. We are in such a fucked up place here in 2021 about race. Worse in many ways than it's ever been, because so much of this stuff is based on lies <laughs> and self-indulgence masquerading as science and morality. And I am genuinely frustrated this month in particular, because it's beginning to be clear to me that we can call this a conversation. And we're, we're heard, and we're not being muzzled. It's not that anybody's keeping us from saying what we're saying, not, not, nothing of the sort. But... What we're saying is always going to be kind of a minority taste. We're heterodox. It's not going to be what the people out there are thinking. It's not going to stop these street protests based on a lie. Maybe that's as good as it gets. Maybe we're expecting too much. We are heard, and I'm very gratified by it, by a great many people, and it is not just white conservatives. Every time you have this mob out on the street and the New York Times writing the usual piece, I just think to myself, this is never going to change. It hasn't changed since Rodney King. And here we are. Rodney King certainly didn't that. That was a travesty. But it hasn't changed since the early 90s. 
And I think we just have to be satisfied with it being the way it is here. But sometimes I just wonder, we heterodox people sitting around and clinking glasses and knowing that we're right, doesn't serve the purpose of the purposes of the community. And if these riots are going to keep happening, the fact that you and me and Coleman and people like that can go have dinner somewhere and tell our war stories, it doesn't help anything. I'm just, I'm, I'm improvising here, but just what is the point of this public intellectual post? I sometimes wonder, and I think I'm just getting a little impatient. Things happen slowly, but in this case, I'm not sure the needle is budging at all. About last spring, George Floyd and think about now. I don't know that anything's budged except that you are heard by a few more people. And I'm so happy that we're being heard, but still, maybe I just need to be more patient. Trying to make an analogy between the assumption that historical circumstance and oppression and suffering have uh, precluded applying the presumption of free will to the victims of American racism and the assumption that partially genetically influenced expressions of intellectual ability as measured by test scores preclude um, African-Americans from performing in a college classroom or avoiding some social dysfunction like criminal behavior or something like that. The predeterminism element of these arguments. One argument comes from the left. It says history has dealt blacks a bad hand. It, we have been oppressed and we have been, been beaten and we abused. What can you expect but that you would see pathological behavior? It's fixed by the historical inheritance. The wealth gap is what it is because we didn't get the hand down from our parents because they didn't get the hand down from their parents. What can we do? The crime rate is what it is. The test scores are what they are, et cetera. Fixed by history, predetermined. And the genetic argument, it's in your genes. What can we expect? Do the best you can. We'll respect you as a human being, but we won't expect you to be doing calculus and we won't expect you to be performing at a high level. And, and if we see that you're not a good parent or that you break the law frequently or that you're uh, more often involved in violence, while we regret that, we can't say that we're surprised because after all, you're genetic, et cetera, et cetera. Well, those arguments have something in common with one another. And from a spiritual, not religious point of view, from the point of view of thinking the human being, unlike uh, the animal king, the rest of the animal kingdom, we have a spirit, we, we have a will, we have a capacity to make ourselves, we, we can be self-critical, we can, notwithstanding the givens, which are our historical inheritance, whether it be genes or some kind of sociopolitical structure, nevertheless, will ourselves to be differently in the world than what has been the case. We can be better. And I say that not just for individuals, and this is really the point that uh, the other second point I want to make. I say it for communities, the collectivity. We have a collective conscious, uh, consciousness, a kind of uh, cultural orientation, which, which we can influence with our literature, with our politics, with, with our public life. We can teach our children differently. We can hold up ideals that they can be reflected in our journalism and in our, in our art and, and in our, in our uh, social life. Uh, there's a better and a worse way of living. We can say to the gangbangers who are killing each other on the streets of Chicago like crazy, last weekend was a horrible weekend, 
we can say to them, be better. We mean that you can live differently than what you're living. And, and we can hold that up as an ideal. A good black person would not live like this, would not neglect to take care of their children, would make the best out of their opportunity. Sloth is bad. Self-pity is bad. Live a life of dignity. But if you embrace this predeterminism, whether it be a genetic or a uh, cultural uh, historical predeterminism, you say all the outcomes are already fixed. You make it uh, almost impossible for a community to marshal its moral resources on behalf of teaching its members what it means to live rightly and to live well. It's, it's a demoralization. It's a fundamental demoralization uh, to take these predetermined uh, positions, it seems to me. So, Glenn, that was. Um... That was too good. That that was an aria. And I'm annoyed now because. Thank you. Because will you please send that to the Times? Will you please write <laughs> that up? Because I'm sitting here thinking I want to write it, but then I'd be stealing it from you. You do it. That should okay. be inviting. I hate to say that, but. Thank that you very should... much, John. I appreciate the feedback. Okay. That was an audience. <laughs> you should know that this is not staged. That was all spontaneous. When you say, here I stand, the victim of your, I forget what noun you use, um, here I stand, the victim of your perfidy, the victim of the obstacles that you place. She thinks, and Simone is, a, is an avatar here, Simone thinks that that's exactly the position we're in, and she thinks it's unreasonable of you to expect that we're going to stand up straight. If you say, why can't we stand up straight, what Simone is thinking is, yeah, you stand up straight and then you're walking down the street and the cops pull you over and beat your head in because you look like some drug suspect that you're looking for. So how can you how can you stand up straight in a society that treats you that way? What's your answer to Simone? Because that's the easy answer that that person has, even when they're 20 years old. They do think that our job is to stand and say we are the victim of your perfidy. They think of that as our dignity. My answer is you're not special. Everybody has wins in their face. Uh, you're privileged. You're rich. Uh, you're empowered. You live in the United States of America. Uh, of people of African descent in large numbers on this planet, we are by far the most prosperous, most powerful. Barack Obama served for eight years as president of the United States. The current sitting secretary of defense is a black man, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is just what Randall Kennedy was saying when we talked with him a couple of weeks ago. Um, I'd say uh, that your ancestors actually did have a, a boulder on their shoulders. You don't. I'd say look at what they did notwithstanding what they had to confront. The, the world is your oyster. The streets are paved with gold. Everything is possible. Don't you see what's happening in the 21st century, I'd say. I'd say, look at the immigrants. Now, people want to preclude me saying this uh, uh, peremptorily. You can't compare blacks to the immigrants. Why can't I? Why can't I take note of what's possible in this great country? Why can't I avail myself of the example of peoples, numerous, 
uh, who have demonstrated what is possible in this great country. It can't possibly be true that we African-Americans are so exceptional that those achievements don't have anything to teach us about what's possible in this country. I would say, I would, I would say, and, 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 you know, Simone, look at Brown University. Uh, they are four square and 100% behind everything that uh, the wokesters want to do, I'd say. I'd say, look at the 1619 Project that's being taught to kids in uh, high school, et, et cetera. I, I'd say, uh, look at the cancellation up and down the line uh, of people who, you know, deviate by epsilon from, you know, some uh, mantra that you've been taught in your religion. Um, You know, I know I can say all of that. I mean, but, uh, you know, you don't think that's going to reach Simone, do you? Professor Lowry, how come we can't just be mediocre? How come, why should we have to try harder here like a Nigerian immigrant after all we've been through? Nigerian immigrants have immigrant pluck. We've been here for 400 years and we shouldn't have to try harder. We should fight for our right to be mediocre. Woo, woo, woo. Why should we try harder? She's probably not going to. She's probably not going to. What do you have to say to that one? Is she going to explicitly affirm and embrace mediocrity? You know, she's probably going to just challenge the standard by which you're making the judgment of who is and isn't mediocre. Uh, but I'm going to say nobody's coming to save you. I'm going to say you can do that if you want to. I'm, I'm going to say, OK, forget about all this high philosophic moral stuff. Let's just talk about practical politics. Uh, what do you think that's going to get you? You just made yourself into a, a, a client. Uh, you, you just threw yourself prostrate uh, on the mercy of, of the court. You, you just uh, flopped. You, you just, you know, you've gone slack on me. Uh, and, and now the entire game is. Will they accede to your demand? You know, mm-hmm. will, will they affirm your victim status? <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'd just be repeating myself if I were to observe that that makes all of the moral agency reside in the oppressor. Mm-hmm. They become the ones mm-hmm. who are possible of, of behaving virtuously. You're simply a bobble, uh, you know, being pushed this way and that by forces over which you have no control. That, that's mm-hmm. a abject surrender. But, I, uh, but there's a couple of things I want to say. One is you in this mea culpa moment, you know, the moment when the black guys at bloggingheads.tv, the contrarians, the quote unquote conservatives are uh, being expected to apologize because the Trump supporters white have gone mad. And, and I think you've dispatched that expectation perfectly adequately. I have nothing more to add to it. I say I'm not going down that rabbit hole. However, there is something of the mea culpa variety that I think has to be entertained here. What? Glenn Lowry, Trump apologist. Oh, yeah. Right. In other words, whenever we would have a, whenever whenever we would have a talk about Trump, you would be in the position. He's a buffoon. He's a jackass. He's an idiot. He's a monster. He's a moron. He's a child. And I would be saying something like, well, wait a minute, John, you just you know, I know you live uh, wherever you live in New York City and you got to maintain your viability within your social circle. And, you know, you, you, you know, 
So you have to spot these kind of things. But I mean, how can he be so stupid if he's been so successful in his political career? And how can you know? And I'm mean, give the man the benefit of the doubt. He is the president. Of the he has tens of millions of people who believe in him. He's their tribune. Have some respect for them if you don't have any respect for him. He's not that bad. You exaggerated. He didn't at Charlottesville. He didn't support the white supremacy. I've been heard to say all of this kind of stuff. Okay. <laughs> now there are many people i don't read twitter as much as you do but i i couldn't help but see this we're saying see there glenn lauer you are dead wrong about trump and this is a cost to the country i told you there are many never trumpers who said he was unsuitable to be in the office he was unfit for the office his characterological flaws disqualified him from the office there are many people like andrew sullivan who said that his election was an existential threat to the integrity of American democracy or words to that effect. And here we are now with our democracy on edge, to be sure, uh, in substantial part because of the actions of Donald Trump in the face of his defeat. Uh, and a person could well say to Glenn Lowry, see there, I told you. See there, I told you. They could. <laughs> This is blood. You got blood on your hands indirectly because they might even be thinking about deplatforming me. They, they, they might be thinking about putting me on that enemies list because there are enemies lists being drawn up even as we speak. You know that, don't you, John? You of, mean a, uh, a list of witches, right? Yeah. Yeah, witches, man. Senators, U.S. senators, uh, state reps who might have said something on the floor of their particular uh, state's uh, legislative house where it was uh, supportive of Trump. Lawyers. Mm -hmm. Lawyers who people are going to say should be disbarred. I wouldn't want to have uh, any significant investment in Rudy Giuliani stock at this moment, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah. And that enemy's list is going to extend. People are scrubbing their social media files, not me. Uh, I can't anyway. There's no way I could scrub all my pro-Trump, Trump apologetics uh, off of my uh, off of my uh, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and other accounts. I'm out there. I'm out there. Um, and there are people scrubbing files and there are people combing through the files, trying to find incriminating evidence. People are losing their jobs. That's another thing. I don't recall any African-American. I could be wrong. Tell me that I'm wrong. Whose employer fired them because they could be facially identified in a photo of people surging at the uh, police uh, barricaded, uh, you know, or in a crowd that got unruly and arson broke out and or where bricks were being thrown at police officers and a person was seen. in. I don't remember any such person being a lot fired, of them probably got promotions, yeah, fired from their job or in other ways uh, having their livelihood interrupted because they were seen to have participated in the protest. And if they were, they would have been a cost celeb around whom would have gathered the entire liberal establishment of this country to assert correctly their right of freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. This is not excusing anybody who's actually committing criminal acts. I'm just saying being a part of a demonstration, marking you as somehow unfit for employment or association. I don't remember that happening in uh, the uh, case of the race riots in the summer after George Floyd was killed. Mm -mm. Uh, mm -mm. But it's happening now and it's going to happen with a vengeance. Uh, people are making open political statements. Let's not forget. We must never let them forget. We must scar and mark them forever. Um, if they if they did what? If they said they thought that there were irregularities warranting significant investigation in the 2020 election. Mind you now, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying a person could say it. 
Mm-hmm. That, that's not seditious. It's not seditious to wonder whether or not irregularities ought to be investigated in an electoral process. There are irregularities all the time in elections, et cetera. I'll stop because if I continue to talk in that vein, I'll be marking myself as one of these uh, rebels or one of these uh, people who have no respect for the Constitution. But it, we've gotten to the point now where even to raise a question of that sort um, is uh, is uh, career threatening uh, for uh, for people. And I don't recall that as having happened before. But let me not let me not mince words. And I know I've been talking for a while, John. I was wrong about the threat that Donald Trump posed to American democracy. I underestimated that threat. Now, I don't know for sure that the election was in every respect on the up and up in every state in which disputes have been raised. I don't know that for sure. I don't know it. None of us know it. None of us know it. We have faith in the system the same way that we believe when we go in for brain surgery and we don't know a damn thing about neurology that it's going to be okay. When we get on an airplane and we know absolutely nothing about avionics, that it's going to be okay. We basically have to trust institutions. The courts have vetted many of the claims that Trump supporters have made in the aftermath of this election. He's gotten no traction. He's gotten no support from the sources of political authority that he might have looked to in the Republicans and in the and, and in the um, state houses and so forth for his uh, dead ender uh, policy. He lost the election, whether it was stolen from him or not. I happen not to know. He lost the election. That's what I do know. I do know that the social fact of him having lost the election is a fact. Just as many people say that Richard Nixon had that election stolen from him in 1960 by shenanigans in the state of Illinois on behalf of the John F. Kennedy campaign. Mm -hmm. Just as many people believe that Al Gore had that election stolen from him in Florida in 2000. Uh, because of the recounting uh, shenanigans and the role that the Supreme Court played in bringing the recount to a halt in Florida, a very close election. Those guys lost those elections in the sense that to have continued to persist in objecting to the electoral outcome would have despoiled American democracy. And they were sufficiently civic minded enough to stand aside. Trump should have stood aside If they stole it from him, they stole it fair and square and it was stolen. There was nothing that could be done about that. Nothing good could have come of his persistence in the path that he chose. Nothing but destruction could follow from him having chosen that path. I don't believe, and I'll say this, that Trump and the remarks that he made before that crowd descended on the Capitol incited insurrection. I think that that's hyperbole. But he certainly played with fire And he ended up getting burned by it and the country even more badly burned. And a bigger man, I'm saying it now, can you hear me? A bigger man would have stood aside and accepted the outcome in the interest of the country, regardless of the doubts that he and his people may have had about it. Perhaps there should have been a commission to investigate whether or not the move to mail-in balloting in the scope and extent that occurred because of COVID uh, post threat to the security of the election in such a way that one wants to consider whether or not to adopt that as an ongoing way of carrying on elections. That's a perfectly legitimate thing to investigate. But tying that to um, holding up the inauguration of Joseph Biden and Kamala Harris, 
uh, uh, tying that to the resolution of this essential right of American democracy and asking for extra legal, even Mike Pence couldn't be persuaded to go along, means to be employed in order to stop the enactment of the natural processes of American democracy when you do not have the evidence on your side to justify your perhaps legitimate suspicions. That was a, 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 an act of uh, a destructive and ill-considered act of narcissism uh, and personal aggrandizement at the expense of the republic, and it deserves to be condemned. I was wrong. John, Glenn, the last post at the Glenn Show uh, Substack page <laughs> um, was a walk down memory lane from the archives of the Glenn <laughs> Show in which we decided to put up the very first conversation that you and I had mm -hmm. under the Blogging Heads umbrella. Was that the very first one? The very first one, I'm told by my oh, man Mark Sussman, who's the newsletter funny. editor. I didn't actually go and check. It looked like the first one. You have a, seven. have one of these phones up to your ear. Yes, That's I how we're communicating that. over a telephone line for the audio. Yeah. And the year is 2007. It's October of 2007. That's when we started. That's Obama right. has not even won the Democratic nomination yet. Mm -hmm. And you and I started Blogging Heads conversations 14 years ago, and here we are. Mm -hmm. that, that seems to warrant some kind of commemoration. You liked Hillary, and I liked Obama. Had I we liked already Hillary, figured that out? Yeah, I, yeah. yeah. What can I tell you? Man, I liked Hillary. And you know? I thought Obama was a was a grifter and a con man and a carpetbagger. I'm I'm from the south side of Chicago, <laughs> and I thought Obama was full of it. I thought he was a Houdini. He had somehow hoodwinked and and, and hypnotized the polity. Hope and change. It seemed ridiculous to me that that was a that was a presidential campaign vision. Our time has come. We are the ones we've been waiting for. Do you remember the slogans from that? I In do. retrospect, don't they sound absolutely vapid? Yes. <laughs> I'm not going to admit it, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, they do. Damn it. But, you know, there's, there's something that we couldn't know. And this is not me trying to sidestep it. That's me sitting there looking 17, and I'm all into this Obama phenomenon, and part of it was the gut rather than the head. But... What we didn't know sitting there talking over the telephone, like it was a different technological moment. Neither one of us at that time knew what a Twitter was. I know That's that in true. 07, I, that year I asked somebody, what is this fucking Twitter? And everybody laughed because- It took know, me another five years. Yeah, it's just, what is that? And Facebook in 2007 was just beginning to be something that people beyond college students did. I think I got on it in 07 and then didn't really start using it until 08. And so it's a whole different world. And Obama coming in, I still believe, could have created a whole new consensus about what race means in America if it weren't for that a Twitter and a Facebook could magnify what happened with first Trayvon Brown and then a Trayvon Martin and then Trayvon Brown and Michael Martin. Trayvon Martin and, Mike and Michael Brown. Because those things galvanized this sense of race issues being primarily about we black people's relationship to state-sponsored violence, so to speak. And it's around then that Ta-Nehisi Coates becomes a superstar. If it weren't for Ferguson, I think he would occupy a very different place. Not to say that he doesn't deserve what he got. But 
<laughs> that changed everything. And it meant that any sense that we were going to think about race on the basis of Obama or anything he said or represented just got flushed. And here we are. And as you and I both know, and you're not supposed to say this, but you and I both know that the Trayvon Martin story was nothing like what we were told back then. We both know that. Right. And 2012, I think, if I'm not mistaken. 2012. More people know, but just don't want to talk about it, that Michael Brown, that that story was nothing like what we were told. And so in a sense, two, it's tragic that those two boys are dead, but two hoaxes ended up forming the basis of what is now considered the proper woke conversation. What's this guy do with Obama, excuse me? Meaning, it distracted from what could have been a whole new mood about race. I think we were on that path in 08 and 09. And then in 09, everybody gets on Twitter and Facebook. It was those years. And by 12, something can happen in Sanford, Florida, and it becomes a national phenomenon that no one would have heard of outside of Sanford, Florida, if it weren't for the new media. And that's also true of Michael Brown. It just wouldn't have had that impact. Nothing but roughly Amadou Diallo had that kind of punch of that sort until then. And so I think that it distracted America from thinking more sensibly about race. And instead, everybody started zeroing in on this, frankly, overwrought and often exaggerated version of what goes on between black men and the cops. And it just it ruined what Obama could have done culturally in that way, even as a symbol, I think. Uh, no, you're not going to have to no? agree to disagree. Rather than seeing it as a constraint on the great possibilities of Obama, who was hamstrung by the unfortunate occurrence of these technological and political events, I see it as a failure of the former President Obama having been presented with an opportunity to lead the country, not just to perform his shtick, to lead the country in a time of peril. By standing up for law and order, he should have done that. He should have given Trump-like speeches about people getting their ass off the street and into their homes, about them attacking police officers. We're going to find out who you are with facial recognition. We're going to hunt you down. About them looting and arsoning. There's no excuse for it. When uh, the stepfather of Michael Brown stands on top of a car and says, burn this bitch down, the president of the United States should have been seeing about having him indicted for the incitement to violence. He should have told the country and black people what they needed to hear after Freddie Gray you didn't mention in Baltimore and so forth and so on, which is that there's no justification whatsoever for your contempt for civility and the rules that, that allow all of us to live here in this great country together. I trust the institutions of government and law enforcement in this country, the president should have said, because I'm in charge of them. Rather, he hemmed and hawed, split the difference with these mobs mobs around courthouses, uh, said stupid shit like, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon, which is blatantly false. No son of Obama would have looked anything like the Trayvon Martin that you and I know about from Joel Gilbert's expose of Trayvon Martin. Uh, he sent Al Sharpton out as an ambassador to black America. We'll never uh, a, 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 a huckster, an ambulance chasing anti-Semite. This is what uh, Barack Obama did. He sent. Eric Holder to try to clean up the mess because although there was no hands up, don't shoot truth, they were going to find a poetic truth in the systemic injustice of Ferguson, Missouri, which begs the question 
So, no, Obama had an opportunity to lead the country. No, he wouldn't have been written up in uh, the uh, uh, scriptural uh, references of the woke. He, he would have been vilified for being a black conservative if he had done something like that. But the country needed a black conservative. Why bother electing a black man to the highest office in the land if when he gets there, he's going to perform the same shtick that any uh, uh, hustling uh, political operative uh, who claims to be representing black people would perform. I offer you the post-presidency of Barack Obama as evidence for the case that I'm making. Absolutely vapid. Are you about to mention this 60th no, birthday? No, I don't have to mention it. <laughs> Everybody knows he and Michelle are billionaires. Everybody knows it's all about uh, uh, Netflix deals and, uh, and uh, whatnot. Everybody knows where Martha's Vineyard is. Everybody knows how connected he is to the very um, people to whom he was appealing. Our time has come. Can't you remember those posters? Martin Luther King's photo here, Barack Hussein Obama's photo there, and the caption being, he had a dream, now the dream comes true. I actually lived those years. I remember what that phony ass campaign was about. So, sorry, but that's how I feel, okay? So now you know. Now, Glenn, this is, this is a genuine question. You um, <laughs> accurately <laughs> sussed out that um, in me there's a little bit with Eric Adams of, I don't know if I would want him over to dinner. I hate to admit it, but that's about 5% of it. Why do you hate Barack Hussein Obama so much? Oh. Do you really think that he's a canny operator? Is that really the type of person he is? Isn't he a little, little sober for that? Isn't he a little bit the lawyer? I think he's... Well, is, he really, is he really that cynical? If I come, come further along the line that I've already laid down for myself, I'm the only one that's going to get hurt by it. Barack Obama is untouchable. Nobody gives a damn what I say about him. And in fact, your very question, which is not a refutation of the argument that I made, but rather an ad hominem reference, why are you saying these things about our great Barack Obama? I didn't ask that. I said, what are the things about him that elicit this level of contempt because it seems like it's a little bit more than anything he did this genuine well, I, I mean i'll just repeat myself he ran on the historic campaign he made the thrill run down chris matthews leg idea that there was going to be a black president it was kennedy s camelot coming well again. he was he wasn't he did symbolize that well he symbolized it but he wasn't because how was kennedy more X than Barack Obama. Kennedy wasn't that good. Um, here's what I know. I know that when he began, he had control of the Democrats of both houses of Congress and of the majority okay. of state houses. I know that when he left, Donald Trump was getting ready to be president. They lost control of everything, and uh, the Democrats took a bath in half the country. That's what I know. I know race relations got worse after the first black president was, that was, social uh, media well. was appointed. That was, that, that was Twitter and Facebook's fault. I truly believe that. I think it was a failure of leadership from the top, in part. It's also a consequence of that. I made the case that I made about, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. Al Sharpton? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Glenn, I, you know, you, it's because you are more of a contrarian 
than I am. When Obama said that about Trayvon Martin, that was a sacrosanct case. Before we knew, not only, not only the facts that we know that nobody will ever admit, but even, you know, a lot of it started falling apart about six months after it became a celebrated cause. But for about 10 minutes, it just looked like this poor boy had been shot by this overzealous little neighborhood detective. And with the whole country thinking that and Obama not in a position to know any better, it was really so bad that our black president expressed a visceral kind of sympathy with the murder of that boy. But well, he wasn't murdered, John. But we know that now. He was killed in an act of self-defense. A jury deliberated over the facts. They found George Zimmerman innocent and of that claim. And yet still, and with respect, it's possible to say murder about that event in part because the president of the United States, instead of saying, let's keep our powder dry, everybody. Let's be cool. These cases come and they go. We know that the facts will be fully determined in the fullness of time. I'm going to reserve judgment about what happened down there rather than jump on a bandwagon and send an anti-Semitic ambulance chaser out to represent my administration. He played you people. All right. Final question here comes from William. He asks, with seemingly every aspect of government, culture, and academia overtaken by woke nonsense, how do we not totally despair? When the State Department is celebrating preferred pronouns rather than worrying about getting our remaining patriots out of Afghanistan, when Cardi B is celebrated as a brave, empowered female woman and uh, women like uh, Condoleezza Rice or Ayan Hirsi Ali are denigrated and denounced, or when Major scientific publications are more concerned with the racial equity of citations than the validity of their findings. How are we to even begin to return to an iota of normalcy? Give me reason to be hopeful. He asked that of the author of Woke Anti-Racism. Mm -hmm. Or Woke Racism, sorry. Woke that's, racism. A, that's, a, that's an important <laughs> error. It's racism, but it's woke racism. How can we avoid total despair? Because there's a pushback happening. And you're gonna read about it from many people as a racist backlash. That's not what it is. It's that this wokeism expressed itself quite extremely during the pandemic for various reasons. And an awful lot of play acting has been happening. But I think there is an intelligent pushback against the excesses. And actually in my book, at the end, I list some of those things as they were by even the end of 2020. Back then, I was loath to say that we were seeing a systematic pushback, but now I'm not as scared as I used to be. You know, for a scientific journal to really be more concerned with having brown faces in its heads, uh, in its headlines than what, what the articles actually say, I had to talk about faith. I have faith that that's going to turn out to be a fashion that people are going to remember having really crested early in the 2020s. I think that we're going to get back to at least 2018 or 19. Now, Cardi B being more interesting than Condoleezza Rice, that's old news. There were people <laughs> writing okay. doctoral theses on Lil' Kim 25 years ago who were much yeah. more interested in her than in Donna Brazil. That's just, that's life. But I think we're seeing a pushback against the worst of what's going on. I have more heart every week in seeing somebody who just stands up and says no. And if enough people do it, we'll just get back to normalcy, which is not some you know right-wing hegemony, but just not having the hyper-woke, angry kind of person having their way because they call you racist on Twitter. I think we're, we're going to get past that. 
Yeah, I can associate myself with those remarks. I don't think it's over by any means. And so don't despair, William, because it, the, the uh, outcome is yet to be determined. I think you saw in the Virginia governor's race, which was decided a few days ago as we speak here and now. There you go. Where a Republican, uh, you know, venture capital uh, hedge fund type guy beat Terry McAuliffe, the, you know, former governor of the state and uh, intimate of the Clintons and died in the world Democratic uh, guy in a state that Biden carried by 10 points and he lost. And maybe the main reason that he lost was that he got himself on the wrong side of debates about how race is handled in the curriculum in, in uh, K-12 through education in his state and the role that parents should play uh, in that. I think we saw uh, defund the police get beaten back in a number of places uh, in local elections where uh, Minneapolis, for example, where George Floyd was murdered. Um, the uh, defund of the police uh, referendum was uh, was uh, soundly uh, was soundly defeated. Um, I mean, I I think that uh, the underlying drive for conformity and being on the right side of the race issue, which is what has, in my opinion, allowed uh, abetted by social media. Uh, abetted by cancel culture, uh, has has allowed the wokesters to get as far uh, as they have gotten. Um, I I think it's it's uh, susceptible to collapse. I mean, I've been saying this for a while. I think people, to a certain extent, are bluffing. I mean, I think the idea that mass incarceration is a conspiracy to confine black people in the face of stupefying rates of homicide and crime that's going on in black communities is wearing a little bit thin. You don't hear as much about the school to prison pipeline today as you might have heard in, in the past. I, I think the idea that race, racism and racial discrimination explains every disparity, which is a premise of Ibram X. Kendi's argument. He says, if you've got disparities, you must have racism. Otherwise, you wouldn't have disparities. Is, is uh, uh, I, I think it's a house of cards, and I think it's falling apart. Um, so I think they, they, the wokesters, have overplayed their hands. Uh, you, you feel the pushback in uh, diversity training in the corporate sector where people are starting to, starting to object. I don't know what your inbox looks like, but I hear from a lot of academics who are objecting to loyalty oath kind of impositions that yep. we see in one place or another. So um, we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, William, keep the faith. By the way, I want to interject because, you know, we get fact-checked and it's, it's appropriate. And sometimes I just say stuff, but, um, I said that there were dissertations written about Lil' Kim. I'm not aware of any dissertations. I know that there was somebody who was teaching a class and writing articles, <laughs> but 